on this episode of the Resound Project podcast. You know, some people might not like what I am about to say, but I believe the church has been hijacked. I believe the church has stopped being the church in many sense. I believe that we start, we have started worshiping man instead of worshiping God. I, I believe we're in a moment where Christ is saying, I'm waiting on you to be better than who you are. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together, we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. It's easy to bemoan the state of the church in the wider world as we consider the reality of racial division and political polarization. It's much more difficult to help pave new pathways for us to walk together, as Tony Loudon has done throughout his life. Tony Loudon is one of the few people who has pastored both black and white churches and has served under two presidents, one a Democrat and the other a Republican. He was appointed the executive director of the Federal Interagency Council on Crime Prevention and Improving Reentry under the Trump administration. In addition, Tony currently serves as the first black pastor of Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, a church that claims President Jimmy Carter as one of its members. In this episode, we discuss Tony's inspiring rise from poverty in North Philadelphia to his work in government, education, and criminal justice reform, in addition to pastoring churches across the demographic and denominational spectrum. The episode concludes with a moving tribute to President Jimmy Carter's faith as the 39th president faces his final days. Here's the conversation. I'm joined today by Tony Loudon, who's currently the pastor of Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia. And Tony, it's a privilege and an honor to speak with you today. You have such an inspiring life story, which I think more people need to hear. There's so much that we can learn from you. And so thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with us today. I think it'd be great to simply start at the beginning. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your childhood, which I know is a rather difficult one growing up in North Philadelphia. Yeah, so I grew up in North Philadelphia. I always say that North Philadelphia is one of the worst ghettos in America. Uh, I grew up in a home, what, what the young people will call a trap house. Uh, the, the older folks will call it a bootleg house. And then the older folks behind them will call it a, a, a speakeasy house if you're from the South. But it's that type of house where everything that goes on, where there's always a gambling game or alcohol or drugs or something that's taking place that are negative uh, in that household um, 24-7. And um, I just happened to be the son of a mother who ran that trap house and had no father in my life, but grew up in this trap house where I was a slave of this trap house. It was my job to come home every day from school to clean up this trap house, to pick up the beer cans, to to clean the ashtrays, to clean up the vomit, and even sometimes clean up my own mother's vomit. Um, uh, to watch men um, to beat and abuse my mom sometimes, uh, or or my sisters or sometimes. Hmm. And so growing up in that made life very difficult. And I remember like it was yesterday, like, God, why would you allow me to be born in this family here? You know, I used to question God as a kid. 
you know, are you real? You know, because if you're real, I shouldn't be growing up in, in this condition. But I had a nana who used to say that if you come to church, I'll bake you a banana pudding. And I went chasing that banana pudding for several reasons. One, to go watch the Eagles or the Phillies or the Yankees or Pirates or some Sixers on, on her TV because you didn't have that access in the house that I was growing up. And then the other reason was to chase that banana pudding. I did not go um, because I wanted to go to church. I went for those two reasons. And I end up always having to sit on the front row of church with her. But more importantly, um, after church, she would always bring me into the kitchen, show me where the banana pudding was in the bottom of this vegetable drawer. And it took me to the point when I got older to realize that she was intentional with recruiting or, or fishing for me as a disciple to show that I was special. And... And she would ask me to go upstairs and she would take this cocoa butter and baby oil, uh, make a bomb in her hand. And she would rub it into the wounds that my mother would afflict on me during the week. My mother used to beat me with a braided extension cord, not because I was a bad kid or bad in school or hung out on the streets or none of that. It was because I did not subscribe to the culture or the way of life that she had in this house. I would stay at school and go to the basketball course deliberately just so that I wouldn't have to be in that place. And then that would cause me to be home, come home late from school. And coming home from late from school because I was a slave of the house, I had chores where I had to clean up that the vomit, the trash cans, the ashtrays, and all the filth that goes with that. And it breaks my heart to think about it now, but there are still children in, in America today that are growing up in that same type of environment. So you started going to church with your aunt, your Nana, and how old were you, would you say, when the message of the gospel clicked and you understood who Jesus was and what he had accomplished for you? How, how did that change your life? I would say around about 10 or 12, uh, maybe t- yeah, 10. I was 10 years old sitting in the church and um, my Nana had just popped me in the head from you know falling asleep in church. You know, I was sitting next to her, and I heard the pastor preaching on Acts chapter 17. He was talking about Paul and Silas being locked up in prison. And, and the jailer asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And I started leaning forward and started listening even more about this whole particular book. And I want to know more about the book of Acts and more about Paul and Silas. And, you know, who is this God that can save a jailer? <laughs> right? Um, after Paul and Silas um, have been beaten and whipped, you know, I, that resonated with me about Paul and Silas being beaten, whipped and, and end up hanging on the cell walls. You know, I know what it, what it meant to be beaten. So I started leaning in and I'll never forget, you know, at the age of at 12, I asked the question to my Nana, what does it take for me to be baptized? I want to be baptized. I want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then I got baptized, and um, I started getting deeper and deeper into the Word of God and, and wanting to know more about Him and chasing Him and asking questions. I was this kid who just said, you know, I need to know more. I need to, for you to prove to me that you are who you are, right? And I had those those David moments uh, 
in Psalms 13 and asking God, why, why, why? But I always found myself back to getting to the point of saying, I will still give you trust him and, 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 and praise him. So once you finished high school, you went off to University of Southern California on an yes. athletic scholarship. Yes. So what sports did you play and, and what did you study there? I, I double majored in government and economics and I played baseball and football. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed my time there. The reason why I chose to go to California is because I thought I would be getting away from the hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, come to find out that uh, USC is 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 in the hood too. It's, mm-hmm. it's surrounded by. It's in South Central. Right. Um, it's surrounded by a big wall. Um, and when I when I first got there, I just realized that as, as much as I was trying to escape my past. God was still placing me in places that need to see the light. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, um, you know, you can't run from the calling that God has on your life. And where we're called to share light and darkness. And a lot of a lot of um, Christians have gotten to the point where we become cheerleaders of light, but not exposing light mm. to darkness. And I, 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 I just thank God for giving me that discernment to be able to turn the light on in dark places instead of just being a cheerleader wanting the light to come on, but being actually able to go into communities and turn on the light. Well, upon graduation, you ended up moving into politics. So you, you, you worked in Southern California uh, among the democratic caucus. Uh, But there's an interesting story there. I, I understand. Absolutely. Um, Willie Brown at that time was Speaker of the House in California, hired me because of my talent uh, around government and strategies and, and getting people elected and, and, and writing legislation. But he never asked me what my pol- political affiliation was. I've always, <laughs> since I was able to vote, he was a registered Republican because it lined it up with my faith and what I believed in. And I worked for him for six years until um we had an educational summit. Uh, Delane Easton was the uh, superintendent of education. She called for an educational summit in San Francisco. Governor Pete Wilson was a speaker. Willie Brown was a speaker. I was a speaker on behalf of the youth. And it was the governor, uh, Pete Wilson, uh, who had to introduce everyone. And so he introduced me. And when he finally read my resume, he turned to Willie Brown and said, and he's a good Republican. And and though you got to understand the the relationship between those two, although they were um, from different parties, they were good friends Mm -hmm. and and they took time with being taking jabs at each other whenever they could. And so he took a jab at uh, at Willie Brown (laughs) on that time. And Willie Brown leaned over and said, are you a registered Republican? I said, yes, you never asked. I said, but I've always made sure that your candidates won. I helped you with the legislation that you won. Our caucus, you've been in power for years, and we've done what we're supposed to do. And he said, well, I I understand that. He said, but some of my colleagues are not going to understand that later on. And then six months later, I was overworking in the Republican caucus, running the Republican (laughs) caucus. So you served on both sides. It was good. And that's how I met so many different people that have made an impact in my life by being able to be a man of God who understands that even though um, you can work in government, you can work in Pharaoh's house, you can live in Pharaoh's house like Moses, but you can still be called to do God's work. That's right. 
Well, and from there, you, you worked in the pharmaceutical industry for a time, and then eventually you found your way to Georgia. Yeah. So do you want to tell me about your arrival in Georgia? And then how did you get involved in some of the things that have become a real passion of your life? Uh, you got involved in in uh, a tutoring program and in, in youth ministry and uh, charter school system, yes. as well as prison reform. So how did that all unfold? I became a youth pastor of one of the largest churches in middle Georgia, you know, and in church, just like majority churches, you always have Easter Sunday. And I noticed that the scripts that we were giving our kids to read, they couldn't read. And as I peeled back the onion more, I realized that a lot of their parents were incarcerated, that they were growing up the same way I was growing up. And it just broke my heart. Hmm. And here's this church that had thousands of people coming to church every Sunday and that we didn't recognize this was the shape of the kids that we were trying to minister to, nor were we trying to do anything to, to help them in that situation. How can I, how can I get a person to know Jesus Christ if they can't read Mm-hmm. They can't understand his word. They can't discern the word for themselves. And so I started a nonprofit. I went to the pastor first and I said, listen, here's the situation with our kids in our church. I said, I need some money to make that happen. And he said, well, you know, we only have 1500 a month for the, for the youth program. I said, well, we bring in 60,000 every week. I said, you <laughs> only have 1500 a month for the kids. He said, you know, that's what we have. I said, well, I'll, I'll raise it on my own. So I went out, started raising money, started my own nonprofit, started LLC. And then as I peeled back the onion more, I knew that I had to do more than mentor, that I I couldn't keep up with the numbers. And so then I started getting involved with trying to get kids into schools that that wasn't failing schools. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, Governor Nathan Deal called and said, hey, Tony, I understand you're very good in politics. And I was wondering if you would help me with my uh, uh, reelection. I said, well, Governor, first, I'd like to get to know you more because I really don't know a whole lot about you. I read and heard about you. Mm-hmm. I said, but then, but I also want you to go to church with me for a year. He said, what do you mean? I said, go to church with me for a year. I picked the church. We go to one church. We don't church hop. We mm-hmm. go to this one church and we let people see you worship. Let the people know how much you love the Lord. I said, I picked the church. <laughs> so, well, I'll try, Tony. And we went, the first church, we went to an all-African-American church. And we stayed that whole Sunday, him and his wife and I. And then we uh, had a private meeting with the, with the pastor. No phones, no cameras, anything. And then we talked about the conditions of the communities. And to every church we went to, the things that they said was mass incarceration. Men and women coming home from prisons in, in the same way they went in. Hmm. Then he talked about the jobs in the communities and education, those three things. And so for a whole year, that's all we heard. And so when Governor Nathan Dill won, he appointed me to be one of the commissioners over the charter schools. And it's been 15 years. I'm still one of the commissioners over the charter schools in the state of Georgia. Hmm. And then he also appointed me to be in charge of criminal justice reform. And so which eventually led me to the White House because Georgia was dead last and criminal justice reform, and we ended up becoming number one in the nation. Not not because of me, but because Governor Nathan Dill gave us the latitude to push the envelope. And so when you had a governor saying, hey, this is what I want Tony to do, I didn't have any many obstacles to knock down. 
because mm-hmm. they knew this is what the governor wanted. And it, 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 it led my fire. I mean, because this is why I believe the church needs to be equipping people. How can you equip them if they can't read and write? How can you equip them if they're in and out of prisons and you don't break the cycle? How can the church not want to help those who have been incarcerated? When we read in Revelations, John wrote most of that book from the prison. If, if you read anything about uh, Joseph going into the pit, into the palace, and then back to prison for being accused of rape, then back to the palace, how can you not want to go and minister in the prisons? How can you not read anything in the New Testament and know about the disciples who were in and out of prison? And then finally, when you when you talk about Jesus, who had six trials, right, and, and, and three by religious people and three by the government, and then he was in and out of prison going to court, and then he was beaten on at the took some whips like I did. It wasn't a braided extension cord, but it was stripes on his back that uh, we all was healed by. And then he was executed by Calvary. But he came back as what we call a returning citizen for all our souls. So how can we not want to help men and women who are in and out of our prisons? That's, I believe that's where the church should be. Because government, uh, Jason, government sends people to prison for the sins, especially the 10 deadly sins. And if we are doctors of sin, if we're the healers of sin, if we know how to show them how to get up under the blood of Jesus Christ, seems like we should be going and turning the light on in that dark place called the prison. I could be wrong about that when I get to heaven, but I just believe in my heart that's where we should be, in the streets, in the prisons. Announce good news to the captives. That's right. Absolutely. So you were very involved then with criminal justice reform in Georgia, the charter school system. And I believe you told me before that you also helped start a multi-ethnic church. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's, that's some of my favorite work there. Uh, with my uh, nonprofit that I started, I first partnered with the Presbyterian Church um, because they had all the resources in, in mm-hmm. Macon, Georgia. Uh, and they called themselves First Church and First Presbyterian a church in Marbury Street in, in Macon, Georgia. And they came alongside them. And then our program, we had 37 kids when we first started. And it grew to anywhere between 800 kids. And so their idea was to serve those kids just on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I said, listen, you can't make a difference in building a relationship with inner city kids. They just want to do it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I said, that model don't really work for the church because all we do is Sunday and Wednesday. I said, but That's however, right. If we went five days a week trying to be intentional with these kids, picking them up and bringing an after school program and, sh- and, 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 and instead of just feed them and reading the Bible, but we equip them and and teach them and love on them. I said, that's better. We equipping them to be better citizens. And so we did that. And the program grew like crazy. Hmm. And so but the church we was in, you know, was, uh, elderly population. Uh, they had some young people as well, but they didn't like the fact there were so many kids running all over the church, including <laughs> the education wing. So they said, well, maybe y'all should have your own building. <laughs> so there was a, a sister church that they founded decades ago called Vineville Presbyterian Church. And they gave me that church along with the education building and wow. the budget and everything because the church was dying. They had um, 18 uh, Caucasian members at the church. And they were all over 70 years of age. 
and they were in an inner city community that had been have have become majority black. Mm-hmm. And so they said, why don't you go there? We changed the name to Strong Tower of Fellowship. Um, I was intentional going out and making sure that we had a white pastor and a black pastor and a Latino pastor. And uh, we took turns preaching every Sunday. And it grew like crazy. That's, that was some of my some of my fondest memories of working in the, in the kingdom, being able to build the church the way it should look in heaven. And I was so mm-hmm. excited about that, um, that work. And then I ended up going to um, starting a church at um, Lundy Chapel, working with a pastor at Lundy Chapel Baptist Church, uh, going there. And from there, I started, um, I started working with Fellowship a Bible Baptist Church, which is a, a all black Southern Baptist church. And so I've had my, my, my um, feel of Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Assembly <laughs> guys, and Southern Baptists. So you might say, well, what are you? I'm just a child of God. That's right. You're I'm, a Christian. That's right. I don't get caught up into denomination. I think that's the one thing that has hurt, um, hurt the church. Because we get so caught up into denominations, I don't see that in the Bible. And then we we divide ourselves by tribes, and and, and that that that's unheard of. Because if I read the Bible, all the tribes were together. That's right. <laughs> and they had different assignments in the tabernacle. Um, but you know, I really want to do what I can to change this climate that we have between black and white. Well, and, and I, I believe you've told me before that there was a a heartbreaking story associated with Strong Tower. Do you want to yes. share that with us as well? Yes. Uh, leaving Strong Tower, i never forget that um, the pastor there who, who came from the Presbyterian Church um, called me one day um, and said, Tony, um, we don't need you anymore. Hmm. And I was getting dressed, getting ready to come to church and preach that day. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we found somebody else. And so... He said, me and the elders got together and we found somebody else. And what happens in the uh, Presbyterian church, the elders are run by the elders. And I, I, mm-hmm. I get that. I understand that. Um, but the reason why is that Tom wanted everyone to call him pastor. And, and he didn't have a relationship with all the people that he wanted. And they called him Tom. And there, every time he saw me, they said, hey, Pastor Tony. Now, I don't get caught up in the titles. I don't mind people calling me Tony, TL, or whatever. <laughs> but that bothered him, and mm-hmm. jealousy uh, came in. And before I know it, there was a coup. And I'm going to tell you, there's no better hurt than church hurt. That's right. Uh, when the church hurts you, man, it cuts all the way down to the white meat. <laughs> and, you know, I, I really want to walk away. I want to walk away from the ministries. And then I, I found myself that Sunday sitting in the back of the a Lundy Chapel Baptist Church broken, mm-hmm. uh, asking God why, you know, uh, I, I, me and David must have something in common because I ask God why all the time. Psalm 13 is my favorite Psalms, mm-hmm. my favorite passage in the whole book, actually. But I think what's so amazing, too, is that you could go through an experience like that that's as hurtful as it clearly was, and yet it doesn't seem to me like you're carrying any animosity uh, but that you've learned to forgive and move on and continue with God's work. So what advice might you give to people who face similar situations where they've been 
burned not just by people, but by the church or by the white church in particular. Yeah, it, it goes all the way back to um, my childhood. You know, one of the things I used to ask, how could my mom take a tradition of whipping her children with an, a braided extension cord with the same mentality that came from the plantations? Mm-hmm. And so that hurt. I yeah, I used to deal with that a lot, but I survived that. And so the passage in the Bible that says, to whom much is given, much is required. Jason, I try to live in that much, that much required. Hmm. I made it out of the worst ghetto in America. I'm required to do something regardless of what my situation is. I can't give up on God because he never gives up on me regardless of my situation, regardless of what my storm looked like, I can't, I got to know that I'm in the boat with Jesus and he's sleeping with me. I can't look at my circumstances and start complaining. You know, a lot of times we always want to fight the fight like we're lions and we get this victory. But sometimes we end up like the slaughtered lambs mm-hmm. and we still have the victory. And so I I understand that. And so I couldn't give up. I just had to keep going and working and walking and praying and fasting and having faith. And so the question that I would say to those who are listening, can you serve the Lord when you're hurt? Hmm. Or do you only serve him when you have joy? And I'll say that every disciple that followed Christ at one time or another was hurt. Mm-hmm. All in silence, beaten in the prison. You go all the way throughout the Bible. They were hurt at some time. And we will be hurt. The question is that we don't give up. We don't quit. We know how the book ends. That's right. We know how it ends. Well, then how did you end up at Maranatha Baptist Church, which I I believe is a historically all-white church, but you're the first black pastor of what had been an all-white Baptist church. Yeah, a friend of mine by the name of Doug Unger called me one day and he said, hey, Tony, um, a friend of mine needs need a pastor to come down and preach for them. I was wondering if you would come down one day and, and preach for my friend. I said, no problem. I said, just send me the information. I'll come down. I'll be there. Tell me what time I'll be there. <laughs> and so I go down there. I didn't know anything about South Georgia. I get down there and South Georgia uh, this church called Maranatha, and I go in, this, this, the parking lot is packed. There's <laughs> everywhere. I mean, a line to get into the church. I'm like, my God, I didn't know this many people was here. Whoa, this is in South Georgia. I get inside, is, there's Jimmy Carter teaching Sunday school. <laughs> and they're all there from all around the world wanting to hear Jimmy Carter. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got nervous now. I'm like, man, I got to follow that. And, <laughs> and that's a tough act to follow. That's right. Absolutely. And next thing I know, you know, it's, it's time for me to preach. And so I go up and I, I preach that Sunday. And then um, afterwards, I take pictures like everyone else do with Jimmy Carter, get to meet Rosalind Carter. And then I I drive home. And then I see that I missed a call and I because I was tired. You know, we don't answer calls that we don't recognize anymore on our cell phones. Right. <laughs> we get to push them to voicemail. And I did that. Didn't listen to it. And then that Monday, I'm driving to work, and I get this message on the phone. Um, and it basically says that it's Jimmy Carter. And 
and it was Jimmy Carter saying, hey, Tony, this is this is President Carter. We truly enjoyed your message. And I was wondering if you would consider being our interim pastor. And if you like us and we like you, we will love you to consider being a pastor. I'm, I'm blown away. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen every day. No, that I actually have the, the 39th president of the United States. I have his cell number now. Warren. That's right. <laughs> and, and then I had to pull over on the side of the road, you know, because it was a God moment. Yeah. It was a truly a God moment. And because uh, I didn't know they didn't have a pastor. And so I, I, I was wrestling with, do I call him back? And so I called him back. And uh, the next thing I, I, I know, he answers the phone. And we're talking. And he said, hey, Tony, you know, I just want you to really consider uh, coming in and being our pastor. And I said, well, you know, I, I would love to be your intern pastor. I said, however, I want you to know I'm at another church. He said, no, but I, I know, but I need someone like you to come and help me with my transition. He said, I love the Lord. I know where I'm going. But even I sometimes get weak and I need someone like you to help me with this transition. Hmm. To be the covering, the spiritual covering of me and my wife. And man, talking about a great honor that was for me to have someone like him, one of the greatest servant leaders I ever met in my life. You know, I've, I've met presidents and governors and, and folks all around the world and religious people and major pastors, but I've never met anyone like Jimmy Carter. Um, his his will to serve and to die to self and to give his time, his talent, his heart, his love for the things of God. It's just amazing. And so the next thing I know, I, I, I was the um, interim pastor that lasted for five weeks. And then they President Carter nominated me to be the pastor of the church within five, five weeks, weeks is all it took. That's and, no surprise to me. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, Jason, I tell you, when I look back over my life, you know, it still brings tears to my eyes because I'm still that little boy from North Philadelphia, from a mother mm -hmm. who used to call me the N-word more than any white person has ever called me the N-word. Hmm. They will say that you're no good N-word, just like you're no good daddy. And, and Hmm. To come from that to all the things that God has done in my life, there's no one that can't tell me that he's not real. And if we pause for a moment and just look over our lives and all the things that we've made it through, we'll see that he's been more real in our lives than we've ever been in our entire life. And that's why I do everything I can to put him on display in every area of my life. Because hmm. to whom much is given, much is required. I want to live in that much. Well, that's an inspiration, Tony. And so then tell us, how did you end up going from the trap house to the White House? Well, I turned that job down three times <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't want to be used as a political pawn because yeah. here I was the pastor, President Jimmy Carter, and a, a Republican president was calling me and asking me to serve. And I have been going back and forth consulting with them on criminal justice reform. In fact, I consulted with them during that transition period when, they, when he won a presidency. And then um, one early morning, about five o'clock in the morning, my cell phone was going off like crazy. And I thought it was a secret service because, you know, I have to be on call for if something happens to President Carter. Mm -hmm. And so 
I get up out of my bed. I look at my cell phone. I look at this text message that was blowing me up and it was said, congratulations. Uh, congratulations. Congratulations on what? <laughs> they had a link. So I clicked on the link and it was an article from the Washington Examiner that said President Trump intends on appointing Jimmy Carter's pastor as reentries are for the whole country. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I've already had I had already turned down the job three times. So I, I called um, Secret Service as soon as President Carter gets up. He let him not need to talk to him right away. And he says, sorry, Tony, he's already up and he knows that he needs to talk to you, too. So let's just let us know when you're coming down. Everybody already knows. So this was six o'clock in the morning. Hmm. And so uh, I called him. I called the deacons. I went down to see him and we talked. I told him, he said, well, tell me about the job. And I told him that it would be able to. Um, the reentries are for the country is in charge of all 17 state agencies. Uh, I have convening power where I can convene all 17 federal agencies um, to talk to about criminal justice reform. I said, I can help those in prison. I can help those that are mentally ill inside prisons. So I become the voice and the face for criminal justice reform around the nation. I can help those who are, uh, are trapped in prisons that need to come home. I said, I can change that, that direction. And he says, I just want to tell you something. Uh, he says, I just got, I think you should do the job. He said, but I just got one question. Are you still going to be my pastor? Hmm. I said, absolutely. Would you still want me to be your pastor? He said, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, Next thing I know, he he gave a, a interview for the uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution that said um, uh, Tony Lowe's the best man for the job. He said, because when your country calls you, you should serve. Hmm. He said, it doesn't matter what party it is. When old glory calls you, you should serve. And that's what I that's when I took that position. And so my first convening power meeting was to convene a meeting with all 17 agencies in the Situation Room. So looking back on that time, what did you think was most important for you to try to accomplish, not only as a leader, but as a Christian in that room and in that space? Well, getting, getting them to understand that government is Isaiah 9 and 6, that a child was born, a child was given, and it says government should rest on his shoulders. We've always thought that, you know, we should depend on government. But our people, we need to understand that government rests on our shoulders. And it is godly people that make godly decisions that can help people who are in crisis. And so we should feel government in a way and not be threatened by government. We should feel government in a way that we know is going to help those who are falling below the social safety net or help those who are helping them that have fallen below the social safety net. And so in that situation room, uh, I talked about that we should not have women who are pregnant handcuffed to beds to give birth. That should not happen. That and when the pandemic hit us, that we should let these women who are pregnant go home so that we don't end up killing children inside the prisons. And we did that. That we should do everything we can to protect men and women from the pandemic because it is a super spreader just waiting to happen inside our prisons. I think you once told me as well that you were asked to make a proposal as to whether certain prisons should be closed. And yeah. what was the first prison that you suggested should be closed? 
I, I say we should clo close an Angola prison. Most people don't know, Jason, that majority of our prisons in the South are on former plantations. Angola is a prison that is on a former plantation. It's, it's the prison in Louisiana where most people that go to that prison are on there doing life. Mm -hmm. So how did the majority of the people in that prison are African-Americans? And look at this as the big picture. African-Americans escape the South, move out of the South, go to the North. Then um, some of them live in the South and they survive Jim Crow, civil rights, civil war, uh, Vietnam, depressions, all those things that happened in our nation. They survive all those things for their children and their fathers and their sons and grandparents end up back on the plantation. Hmm. Doing what? They pick agriculture. They clean up the roads. They do all, all the uh, uh, growing of, uh, of cattle. They kill cattle. Do all the things that they used to do when they was on the, on the plantation. But they, and they still don't get paid for it. <laughs> What's the difference? The symbolic issue there of this plantation still in existence. The men are in chains, working on the side of the roads. The chain gang still exists. Mm-hmm. We can't talk about criminal justice reform unless we really, 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 really want to be true to about doing something better than what we've done before. And I believe a good start of criminal justice reform is doing away with the prisons that are on plantations like Angola. Mm -hmm. There's a few others that, will, that I would name, but I would definitely start with Angola. List. Well, you've had such a fascinating life, Tony, and there's many, many, many more chapters to be written. And uh, I can't wait to read them all. But I'm curious, uh, from your vantage point, uh, in light of all that you've experienced and in light of all the wisdom that you've gained, what are some of the greatest concerns that you have as you consider the cultural landscape of our country today and the state of the church? You know, some people might not like what I am about to say, but I believe the church has been hijacked. Hmm. I believe the church has stopped being the church in many sense. I believe that we start, we have started worshiping man instead of worshiping God. I, I believe we're in a moment where Christ is saying, I'm waiting on you to be better than who you are. That you can't be big when little got you. The church is doing little things when we can be doing big things. We, we are allowing, when the pandemic hit, a lot of our churches still haven't opened back up because they, 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 they fell, because their members have, have not returned back to church. Mm -hmm. But they go to other places. But we have a lot of people that have not returned back to the church. And I say it because I believe we have created cheerleaders. On Wednesday night, we come in and we cheer, and we play music, we get praise, and then we go back home and we may even... We may even yell at someone for cutting us out in the parking lot, or we may go home and what we learned in, 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 in Bible study or at church, it don't even apply in our home. It don't apply in our workplace, and it definitely do not apply in our political beliefs because that is the biggest place where we're fractured is in our political belief. We've allowed the politics to come into the church and dilute the church. We've allowed politicians to come in and tell us 
This is what Pharaoh can do for you. But we never tell them this is what God has given a man of God for his community, his garden of Eve. Here's the vision that God has given me. I'm sorry that you're coming here to get my vote, but let me tell you what we think the community should be. It should not be liquor stores. It should not be pawn shops. It should not be weed shops on every corner. It should not be those things. Here's what we want. Mm -hmm. But yet we allow politicians to do all those things. We allow planning zonings to determine what our community is going to look like, and we have no voice. And then we allow man to divide us by black, white, and brown. And then when our communities have a shooting or a killing, it's not the church that's standing up, it's the politicians that divide us. And so, you know, I wish that the church will understand that Isaiah 9 and 6, government stands on his shoulders. He shall be called wonderful. He shall be called counselor. He shall be called. And right now we're not calling his name at all. Hmm. We're calling politicians names for, for answers. And I, I just I just don't believe that's where God wants us to be. I, I think he's crying right now, looking down at us. For a nation that says, in God we trust. For a church that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When we can't even bring our communities together, based on the fact that we just serve God. We're Christians. We're fighting. I, let me tell you something. It broke my heart to see Christians on January the 6th. People I know, pastors at the Capitol, trying to overthrow the Capitol. It broke my mm -hmm. heart. People I knew. This is, this is an administration I work for. <laughs> so I had a different perspective. It broke my heart. And then to go back in my own church, at Maranatha Baptist Church, and to see that because of the last two elections, my church has been divided hmm. by left or right. I just want to tell those out there listening today and, and may even disagree with me. I don't worship the donkey or the elephant. I worship the lamb. Mm -hmm. That's who we are as Christians. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. A child was given, a child was born. A child was born, a child was given. He became the lamb given for our sins. And we should worship the lamb, not man. Well, I think this is why we really need your voice today, Tony. And there's a lot of people who would point to the division between black and white and the political polarization left and right. There's very few people, though, who in their own life have done so much bridge building as you have. So you've served in black and white and multi-ethnic churches. You've served both Democrats and Republicans. And you're one of the few people who can probably put his money where his mouth is uh, in terms of pursuing unity and reconciliation and justice in a specifically biblical and Christian way. So what encouragement might you give to those who are out there who are deeply concerned about the splintering and the fragmentation taking place not only within our culture, but within our churches, what might you encourage them to do to, to help bring the healing that we need? I think we have to get to this point. I always say this after when I'm done preaching, I say that um, I love you and ain't nothing you can do about it. Because sometimes when we preach, it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we listen to the preacher, preachers, man, he, he know all that about me. Totally, <laughs> and I was going through that, right? Our nation is going through a lot. There's a lot of polarization on both sides. There's people that 
talk about Black Lives Matter, Police Lives Matter, This Lives Matter, uh, critical race theory, all these different wedge issues. If we just open our eyes and we'll see that they're wedge issues and we're preying on each other, P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y, <laughs> on each other. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've preached in churches where on my way going to that church, there was rebel flags almost on every other house getting <laughs> to that church to preach in. I've, I've preached in churches that was all black. I've preached in churches that was all white. I'm waiting for the day where blacks and whites say, you know what? Let him preach in a black and white church coming together. Let him tell the world what, what Christ would do. I believe some of our leaders that we've had in our lifetime that have gone on and some of them that are really hanging on to life, they gave us examples on how to love each other. I mean, there was a lot of people bitter and, and, and tore up their communities when Martin Luther King died, but it was blacks and whites that worked together to fight during the civil rights movement. We had unity then. There was blacks and whites that helped with poverty in our nation. There were blacks and whites that went to war and helped the Jewish community, the blacks and whites that fought in World War One and World War Two, And we have a responsibility to make that happen. President Carter um, took me out one Sunday to a cemetery in Autry, Georgia, Southwest Georgia. And we got on these back roads to get to the cemetery. Out in the cemetery, I'm wondering why he wants to take me out there because I was working on this project called Blessing of the Elders with Museum of the Bible. And we go out there and the cemetery that he shows me is a cemetery where there's former sharecroppers and slaves. Hmm. It's where they were buried. And he showed me where this bishop of an AME church who was buried there as well. And he told me that in 1923, this black bishop was the one that introduced him to Jesus Christ. This white man from a southern state in 1923 introduced Jimmy Carter as a kid to Jimmy to Jesus Christ. And then he showed me where this young lady was buried by the name of Rachel Clark, who also uh, walked with him in the woods and walked with him and teach him how to fish and, and tell him all about how to treat a woman. And then she would also tell him all about Jesus Christ, this black woman a sharecropper who worked on his father's farm. And he said, I just want to show you where they're buried because they mean so much to me. Hmm. The same Jimmy Carter gave $60,000 to um, pave a road at another cemetery because he says where the whites go, that road is paved when they come hmm. and visit or bury their loved ones. He said, but in that same cemetery on the side where all the blacks are buried, that road is not paid. He said, I'm tired of uh, black women walking in their best clothes, their best shoes, walking in Georgia red clay. Let's get it paid. Hmm. I want to tell you that I believe we need to start paving pathways in our nation for blacks and whites to walk together, to live together, to worship together so that we can make a better nation 
all around together. No, we should say no as Christians to politicians who race bait the church and get us divided from our own communities. We have to let go of the past and build for the future if we truly, truly, truly want to make America better. I just believe we're going to have better days. I really do. I think we're going to have leaders that come about who won't have all the pedigree that we believe they should have. And it's going to be an average Joe or average Susan that's going to lead our nation and say, you know what? We can have better days and we don't have to pray P-R-E-Y on people just to get elected. One of the things that I've often said is that we need to stop listening to the politicians and the pundits and we need to listen to the pastors and specifically we need to listen to the black pastors. So uh, Tony, it, it is a, a joy and an honor to, to hear you share your story with us. You have so much to offer. So thank you for making yourself available. And, and uh, I believe uh, you're right that together we can start paving those roads and carve out a new future for us. And that's what God has promised to do. Absolutely. Uh, level the mountains and clear yes. the highway. You know, Jason, if we truly believe that the word of God goes to our head where we meditate on it, then sometimes it should go down into our heart where we become it. So that when I meet you and what comes out of your heart, I should meet some form of our savior. And then somewhere in the kingdom, I should see your hands working, whether it's in the South, North, East or West in our nation or around the world, I should see you touching the things of God and making them better. And then finally, it should be a habit. It shouldn't just be on Easter. It shouldn't be just on Wednesday nights or whenever the Bible studies are, and it shouldn't be just on Sundays. That I should have a habit of the things of God, the four H's from the head to the heart, the hands, and then I should have a habit of doing things like Jimmy Carter or my Nana with the banana pudding. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.